So this week we are back with uh, chapter 14. Sorry, 15. <laughs> <laughs> Good start, game. Yeah, thanks. Uh, Demagogues and Martyrs. It's another of these very long chapters. Uh, and we're here, like, squarely in the post-war, post-1815 period. So Thompson begins the chapter, um, I think kind of dramatically. Uh, the wars ended amidst riots. They had lasted with one interval for 23 years, which is pretty extraordinary. You know, I mean, the war between Britain and France goes on for over a whole generation. And it's like total war by the standards of the period anyway. You know, it's being fought, obviously, on near the European continent, but also in various ways overseas, and it's just like massive mobilization, huge naval war. Um, and I feel like we've gotten throughout the book, Thompson is sort of saying, oh, the horrible social toll, the horrible social toll of this war, you know, prices and conscription and all these things, taxes. Um, but, you know, 23 years is just an extremely long time, and it makes sense that I feel like it was getting to the end of it. It made more sense to me why the war is such a crucible of radicalization. Um, anyway, the point that he's making here is, uh, he says, uh, during the passage of the Corn Laws in 1815, the Houses of Parliament were defended with troops from menacing crowds. Thousands of disbanded soldiers and sailors returned to find unemployment in their villages. The next four years are the heroic age of popular radicalism. This radicalism was not as in the 1790s, a minority propaganda identified with a few organizations and writers. After 1815, the claims of rights of man had little novelty. They were now assumed. Um, and then, you know, he kind of begins to talk about some of the individual figures like Henry Hunt and William Cobbett, who embody and kind of speak for this popular radicalism. And a big part of that is that it doesn't have organization, national organization, right? And so instead, these you get these sort of propagandists who are taking the place as the voice of this movement, Cobbett and Hunt being sort of the key figures. Yeah, a different quality, it seems like. I mean, it seems like Cobbett is sort of better than Hunt, is, my, is the impression I came up yeah. with. Yeah. I mean, he definitely, there's definitely unflattering drawings of Hunt in this chapter. I won't find them right now, but about his vanity, um, things like that. Yeah. Well, and he is a, um, he's a member of the gentry or something, right? He's like, he yeah. has some land. Uh, he's a kind of, um, you know, sympathetic reformer figure, but he's, uh, he is not like a up from below type guy. Orator Hunt, that's how he's called. Yeah. Uh, because he's such a good, good speechifier. Um, and there's a couple of really big demonstrations at Spa Fields in London in, I guess, uh, 1816, that where he really makes his name, which is important because he's going to also come up in our discussion of the movie Peterloo later. Um, it's interesting also, I mean, I, you know, one has some sense of this already, but the role of taxation as being like one of the main complaints with, with the state. And, you know, one of the main kind of working class demands has to do with taxation on everything, um, which is how, how the state has paid for the war, I guess. But, um, you know, in addition to the kind of complaints with employers, obviously, that have taken up a lot of the last couple chapters, 
There's also this sense of, I mean, taxation without representation, I think gets used as a phrase somewhere in this chapter. Yeah, I mean, he describes it as generalized libertarian rhetoric, right? So that is really Hunt's big thing is talking about the people being taxed. And what he says on um, page 603, what was the cause of taxation? Corruption. It was corruption that had enabled the borough mongers to wage the bloody war, which had for its object the destruction of the liberties of all countries, but principally of our own. Everything that concerned their subsistence or comforts was taxed. Was not their loaf taxed? Was not their beer taxed? Was not everything they ate, drank, wore, and even said taxed? So this is, I mean, classically libertarian, sort of op- opposition to what people consider sort of the unreformed, corrupt House of Commons. Yeah, I hate when my loaf and beer are taxed. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so like there's a kind of, uh, you know, argument then that various figures who stand for this popular discontent have achieved a kind of high level of individual popularity. Um, and Thompson quotes Cobbett uh, describing the punishment of um, Eaton. Who's Eaton? His first, what's his first name? Doesn't matter. Uh, I saw Eaton stand in the pillory, Cobbett recalled some years later. The day before, in the same place, a man had been in the pillory for perjury and had been pelted with rotten eggs, almost strangled by blood and guts brought from the slaughterhouses and flung in his face. Very different was the reception that Mr. Eaton met with. An immense crowd of people cheered him during the whole hour. Some held out biscuits as if to present him uh, present him with. Others held him out glasses of wine. Others little flags of triumph and bunches of flowers. While the executioner and officers of justice were hooted. Th- this it was that was the real cause of putting an end to the punishment of the pillory. The crowd, said Cobbett, was a specimen of London. Gentlemen, merchants, tradesmen of all sorts, artisans and laborers, and a pretty fair proportion of females. Uh... So, you know, there's a kind of there's a, a number of incidents like this throughout throughout the chapter where uh, either orators kind of gain huge popularity in front of crowds, or you know, le- popular leaders of different kinds kind of face punishment, you know, against huge popular protest. But in one way or another, there's this kind of plebeian consensus that has developed such that at the end of six oh five, Thompson says. Um, England in 1792 had been governed by consent and deference, supplemented by the gallows and the church and king mob. In 1816, the English people were held down by force. Right. I mean, it's worth pointing out that this Eaton that you're referring to was a publisher. And so people were objecting to the fact that he was being pilloried for, I think, what uh, what Thompson calls a matter of opinion. Yeah. And there's this way that, um, and this comes up throughout the chapter too and in the movie, uh, there's a funny kind of like duality going on where it's both a society where people think that they're entitled to free freedom of speech and expression and assembly. And so, you know, these kind of liberal freedoms, uh, they think that they're their rights and they're outraged by the infringement of those rights at the same time as those rights seem to like basically never be observed. Right. I mean, it's. There's the environment of enormous repression of all of those. Right. Which, you know, it makes sense why that would be a kind of radicalizing environment where you had both like both a very serious kind of customary expectation around those and also a state that was actually willing to kind of violate them with great frequency. And also deploy spies preventatively yeah. uh, to infringe on people's rights that they you know, sort of believe that they have. Yeah. Right, it just the whole society is riddled with spies, evidently. 
Um, here's another, just to kind of do another little story like this. At on six oh six six oh seven, um, someone named Cashman, who's a sailor, uh, is, he gets executed. So Cashman is a sailor in the in the fleet. Uh, he gets demobilized. Uh, he's Irish also, which is important, I think. Uh, he was in the naval wars for many years. He was wounded nine times. Um, he was owed by the Admiralty more than five years back pay, as well as a considerable sum of prize money. Um, a sum of a one pound a month, which he had signed over to his poverty-stricken mother in Ireland, has never been paid. And so he's been discharged penniless. Um, and Thompson says, in pursuit of restitution, he had been referred from one circum circumlocution office to the next. So there's a riot. Um, and on the morning in London, on the morning of the riot, he had once again gone to some office to try to get the money he's owed um, unsuccessfully. And as he's leaving, he runs into a, a fellow sailor who says, why don't you come to the demonstration? And, you know, maybe gives him a little booze. Um, and Cashman, Thompson says, had little understanding of the purpose of the meeting and perhaps could not, and perhaps not much recollection of its events. <laughs> um, but uh, nonetheless, he gets singled out by the authorities, uh, you know, I think in part because he is a sailor and, um, you know, sailors are very often kind of pretty disputatious and rowdy presences in popular politics and demonstrations. Um, going back significantly before this, I mean, uh, you know, because ships were sort of the first factories, sailors are in some way the first really clear, like, proletarians. Um, so anyway, he kind of gets singled out, um, and he gets arrested and sentenced to death for... I mean, it's interesting, you know, in the light of the demonstrations of the past month, like, the way people kind of chanced into them um, not chance, but you know, joined them who never joined them before, encountered repression that they didn't expect, and so on. Um, so anyway, he gets kind of singled out and sent to death. And Thompson says, um, well, first of all, Cashman himself was chiefly indignant at the injustice of his case, at being drawn in a cart through the streets and exposed like a common robber. This is not for cowardice, he exclaimed. I am not brought to this for any robbery. If I was at my quarters, I would not be killed in the smoke. I'd be in the fire. I've done nothing against my king and country, but fought for them. The execution assumed the character of a great popular demonstration, and the scaffold had to be defended by barricades and an immense force of constables. And then Thompson quoting says, As the sheriffs advanced, the mob expressed the strongest feelings of indignation. Groans and hisses burst from all quarters, and attempts were made to rush forward. Cashman seemed to enter into the spirit of the spectators and joined in their exclamations with a terrific shout, Hurrah, my hearties in the cause! Success! Cheer up! Um, and then on the scaffold, Cashman rejected the ghastly solicitations to confession and repentance of two Anglican clergymen. Don't bother me. It's no use. I want no mercy but from God. Then, addressing the crowd, Now, you buggers, give me three cheers when I trip. And after telling the executioner to let go the jib boom, Cashman was cheering at the instant the fatal board fell from beneath his feet. After a few minutes dead, it's dead silence, the crowd renewed the expressions of disgust and indignation towards every person who had taken a part in the dreadful exhibition. With cries of murder and shame, it was several hours before the people dispersed. So that feels like a very good like table setting of like the environment in 1816. That, that, that whole passage really struck me. Mm -hmm. thanks, for, thanks for letting me read two whole pages. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, and then from there, Thompson goes into, I mean, the next section that starts at the bottom of that page, 607, is problems of leadership, um, which is where we get into sort of these character sketches of each of these um, figures that become leaders of this popular radicalism. Yeah. Did any of the characters stand out to you? Yeah, I mean, we could go through Major Cartwright, for example, is the first one he talks about. Um, Obviously, to me, the descriptions of Henry Hunt uh, stood out because they're very uh, sort of um, colorful, I guess, as far as his vanity and things like that. Yeah, well, I mean, to start with, should we just go in order? Start with Cartwright. Um, Yeah, sure. uh, So Cartwright, like a number of these figures, Cartwright comes not from the working class himself, right? Right, he's a gentleman. Thompson writes, both Cartwright and Cobbett saw the insurrectionary phase of Luddism as abhorrent and futile. But both of them also looked with renewed interest at the North and Midlands where unrest was growing. Cobbett's dramatic turn to the journeyman and laborers did not take place until 1816. It was the inflexible major, now over 70, who decided to enter the Luddite counties. It was not Cartwright's intention to form a working-class radical movement. Indeed, he thought it to be his duty to oppose, quote, any attempt to excite the poor to invade the property of the rich. It is not by an invasion of such property that the conditions of the poor is to be amended, but by equal laws. So I feel like here in figures like this, you have, um, like, you have liberals. Yeah, sure. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so it go- he goes on to say, pressure for reform might best be obtained, quote, for the most part by means of the middle classes. He wished to divert insurrectionary discontent into constitutional forms and to lay the basis for a nationwide movement continually petitioning Parliament. So there's this divide over, um, you know, the middle classes versus the more, the proletarian working classes movement, right? Yeah. People love to petition Parliament. It's interesting how, t- how seriously they take petitioning Parliament. I mean, it seems like it was a serious ordeal, right? Like, people are, then it becomes the precursor or excuse to arrest people in mass for organizing. Yeah, totally. But it seems like... I mean, we had this with the Luddites, too, in the previous chapter, where, like, sending angry letters is, like, an important part of the political process. But there's some, like, element of, like, written communication that carries a kind of weight that it no longer carries today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, at some point, Thompson talks about how he quotes someone saying, you know, any man can carry petition to London as if, like, this is the grand gesture is that you're going to deliver your petitions, right? Um and these, some of these leading reformers go around collecting petitions in their travels, and I think one of them ends up with 200,000 uh, signatures on a petition that he then brings to London. So this is like a big part of what orients the organizing itself, is petition gathering. Yeah. I guess that's still true, kind of. Sure. This is change.org, but <laughs> uh, analog. <laughs> well, but, I mean, you know, I feel like I know... You hear so often, like, in uh, union organizing campaigns that are starting from zero. Like, I had a friend, I I won't say too many details, but he was organizing a um, hospitality workplace in Connecticut a few years ago. Um, And there were a couple of salts in the shop, but they needed the, you know, they needed to find new ways of developing relationships with workers. And they um, invented a fake petition i think that it was a fake but maybe it was a survey but i think it was a fake petition to like to like rate like they were like doing a petition to raise the minimum wage um i think they stole 
they got a hold of. I wouldn't say they they somehow got a hold of the list of addresses, like the directory of addresses where everyone worked, everyone lived rather, and they went to their houses with a petition uh, to raise the minimum wage. The point being, then seeing who was responsive to that. Sure. and I feel, I mean, that's a kind of a relatively extreme case where, like, the whole thing is kind of a fiction. Sure. But I feel like a, a lot, you know, actually, like, a lot of petitions have have some version of that function, right? There are pretexts to meet someone, to have a conversation. And maybe some of that is also going on here. But, like, people talk about it in ways that last in the historical record. It's like, we brought 200,000 signatures to the Houses of Parliament or whatever. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, in a situation where organization nationally is being rep- is still repressed and hard to do if petitioning is legal at least in theory it's legal then it becomes the one excuse that you can have to actually gather this organizational apparatus yeah so i think one interesting thing that distinguishes cartwright at least at this point in the story is um thompson writes the major was contemptuous of timid whiggish reformers he believed still in the agitation among quote members unlimited he was more interested in the principles of the men with whom he worked than in their income or occupation. In this, he showed courage. So as sort of on the spectrum of where these reformers lie, even if he's more prone to the middle class reformer, um, sort of the agency lying with middle class people, he's still willing to consort with, quote, members unlimited, sort of this old old model of um, equality. Yeah. And in places where there's been a kind of recent insurrectionary history. So he's really putting himself, I mean, at some risk here by associating with people who, you know, in Luddite districts and things like that. And he describes um, fellow reformers being outraged. A manufacturer, he says uh, at the bottom of 609, start of 610, a manufacturer considered himself to be a reformer was outraged because, quote, the dinner tickets for an event with Major Cartwright were priced were priced so low that the company, with few exceptions, were of the lowest rank. The annual parliament and universal suffrage men predominated, and the chair was taken, quote, by one of our violent men. <laughs> <laughs> it was Cartwright, yeah, going on to the next paragraph, that returned from these tours with 200,000 signatures to reform p- petitions. Yeah, and it's by, it's exactly by the fact that all he's doing is, like, speechifying basically and gathering petitions that what he does you know and outside the context of any organization that what he does is legal right um there was a passage earlier where he's like look some pe- some gentlemen on their holiday go to the lakes and some go to the mountains and i simply go to the mill towns and you know give speeches <laughs> right right <laughs> thompson goes on after this description of cartwright to i think a very memorable um description of the london leadership which he you know is basically a mess of personalities um that are sort of even though there's a london radicalism it's sort of removed from any sort of organizational base and so on 612 he says there's a sense of impermanence about the london leadership prominent national personalities orators wire pullers journalists or tavern demagogues succeeded each other in favor and often engaged in bitter internecine polemics in full public view Moreover, London radicalism emerged from the wars already much divided. The obvious contestant for leadership was the old Westminster Westminster Committee, but this committee now moved decisively in the direction of the alliance between artisan and middle-class reformers. So he starts running through each of these personalities, but you sort of imagine this um, 
bitter fighting going on in London as the as the sort of more actually well organized and revolutionary lands outside of the city um, await London's leadership. And it seems like in a real way the action kind of moves for, like up until I guess sort of the last chapter really uh, the last couple chapters with the weavers and so on. Um, London was really the kind of heart of ra- like ideological radicalism in the book. And I feel like th- it's around this part of the book generally that it's really shifting northward in a decisive way. Yeah, I mean, also during the Luddite movement is where, yeah. Right, yeah. Is yeah, where yeah. the shift starts, really. He writes on 611, the radicalism of Manchester, Birmingham, or Leeds bore a direct relationship to the structure of each, each community. It is less easy to indicate an authentic London radicalism deriving from its industrial structure community pattern. Everyone who aspired to the radical leadership or influence had a London following. Cobbett, Burdett, Carlyle, Thistlewood, the Benthamites, Henry Hunt, and more. From the London presses there came a constant outpouring of radical papers and books. But London itself rarely appeared as a national focus for popular reform organization until the eve of 1832. So London's just too big, too diverse... Um, it, the manufacturing centers, in contrast, have this sort of organic sense of community and organization that's being formed with people who sort of stay in their stations long enough to build up sort of a base in the community. Yeah. Well, and uh, as Gavin and I talked about last week also, and as came up in the last chapter, um, radicalism that has a deep organic industrial basis is much less vulnerable to... Um, spying and repression, right? Because people all know each other. Um, And where it has to be organized politically as opposed to kind of industrially, um, you know, by people who don't necessarily know each other except outside the context of the club that they're in or whatever, uh, it's much more vulnerable. So he talks a little bit again about Francis Place, who has come up throughout the book. Um, On 612 at the bottom... Uh, he's so he's sort of contemptuous of this new London underground, uh, this what Thompson calls the tavern world, where a new generation of agitators was now at work. Um, place writes of Cobbett that he was too ignorant to see that the common people must ever be imbecile in this respect, i.e., political organization, when not encouraged and supported by others who have money and influence. So at this point, place has really moved. I mean, throughout the book, he's been moving sort of to the right away from. Uh, these the quote unquote members unlimited sort of model of um, organization and, yeah. and conversation, and so he comes up again a lot in this chapter, sort of dismissing some of these leaders. Yeah, well, and to put this kind of in conversation with uh, really early discussions we had on Anderson and Nairn and Thompson, um, right? Place really embody uh, places like uh, a utilitarian, basically, right? He's like a utilitarian ideologically, uh, from the kind of top stratum of the working class in some way. Um, Thompson writes on the top of 613, while he was no less of a radical in his contempt for the inefficiency and irrationalism of aristocratic government, and in his indignation at the corn laws or at any repressive legislation, he was deeply hostile to any open strategy of popular agitation and organization. So place really embodies like the influence of the industrial bourgeoisie on the working class, right? He's the kind of like... Uh, nexus of that attempted kind of hegemony. Um, and there are various times, I think, earlier in the book when we've talked about how place really seems to be 
kind of a character out of the Anderson, like places who Anderson is envisioning when he writes about how the English working class is kind of like profoundly subordinated ideologically to the, to the bourgeoisie. Um, You know, just like uh, the idea that the working class, the proletariat or whatever, the working class and the industrial capitalist could actually share a kind of anti-aristocratic radicalism focus on political reform around parliament around you know the corn laws which is to say tariffs um which are favored by the aristocracy and opposed by the uh, bourgeoisie because they drive up the price of food which is good for landowners and bad for factory owners anyway just like place really i think like is is the kind of heart of what to whatever extent the anderson thing is true it's like place is what it's about mm-hmm and he, Thompson quotes on 613, another address from place where he says, it is to the middle class now, as at other times, that the salvation of all that ought to be dear to Englishmen must be confided. It is from this class that whatever of good must be obtained, may be obtained, must proceed. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, you know, the kind of, I feel like what we see here is the really uh, early divisions over the question of whether class conflict was about bourgeois revolution or was about something more profound, right? Like once the aristocracy is, is deposed in some way, um, you know, does class conflict go away having been a kind of vestige of the end of feudalism or, or is it in fact, you know, developing further? So then there's another contrasting bunch of people that, um, again, place dismisses quite a bit. The Spencians. Place is wrong. Place gets it wrong. <laughs> yes. Uh, <laughs> he describes them as harmless and simple. Um, but Thompson says, but insofar as they were the main contenders with place in the Westminster committee in 1816 to 17 for the leadership of London radicalism place is not a disinterested witness to a Benthamite Thomas Evanson's Christian policy for the salvation of the empire from 1816 must have seemed folly, but it may be suggested that Evans' agrarian socialism was more rational and seminal than Bentham's philosophic calculus. The Spencian advocates had won much support among the trades clubs, especially among the shoemakers, who, as we've now seen through this book, the shoemakers, you know, who wins the shoemaker? Yeah, who wins the shoemakers wins the revolution. Um, so um, their policy that, quote, all feudality or lordship in the soil must be abolished, and the territory declared to be the people's common farm, was preparing the minds of artisans for the acceptance of Owen's new view of society. If the Spencians were more than, quote, simple, they were also in 1816 of some influence. In places vocabulary, to be, quote, next to nobody and nothing meant that they had no wires to pull in Parliament, nor in influential middle-class circles. But Preston and Thistlewood, who are two of the Spencians, certainly knew the tavern world of London better than sp better than place. Then Thompson goes on to sort of describe, like, is Spency in the right word? Evans, one of them, was a disciple of Spence. Um, others, maybe, is a looser connection, but Spence has come up throughout the book um, as this sort of proto-revolutionary. Um, and then he goes through various other characters, Samuel Bamford, who kind of comes up again and again, uh... And it also, again, is in the movie in a kind of key role, um, appears here. But it seems like where Thompson is really working toward comes up on 616. He writes, 
Thus, the London Reform Movement commenced divided between cautious constitutionalists on the one hand and conspirators on the other. To be clear, I mean, the conspirators would be the Spencians. Yeah, but like... Well, I guess their conspiracy is coming later in the chapter, basically. Yeah, right. But as far as their linkage to the underground tavern world, and Thompson carefully says, like, they may have been involved in underground political work, may not have, but... Right, but they do envision, as he says on 616, um, a notion that London must perform the role of Paris in an English revolution, either by means of riots culminating in general insurrection directed at the Tower, the prisons, and the House of Parliament, or by means of a coup d'etat. Uh, and then they do a bunch of stuff like try to make grenades at home that don't work that well. Well, Thompson <laughs> writes that they were unable to erect a single defended barricade in the London streets, which is pretty harsh. <laughs> so then we have the Hampton Clubs. Which are what? I mean, they're kind of reform clubs, right? It's, uh, I'm, I'm trying to figure out here how they avoided avoided repression, legal repression. Well, they certainly were, they, I mean, Thompson draws on the words of a lot of informers who were attending these meetings in the Hampton clubs. But often they were, I mean, they weren't necessarily coordinating nationally at first, and they were also addressed to petitioning constitutionalist reforms. Yeah. Um, on 619, I mean, these are so the reform clubs, basically, and it seems like they're particularly popular in the industrial towns in the north. Um, on 619 he writes thus there was a very remarkable growth of provincial Hampton clubs or union societies in the last months of, of 1816 and within weeks of their formation these clubs were pressing outwards for regional and national contacts which were illegal under the Seditious Societies Act uh, at one time it seemed Manchester might assume national leadership in the event however it was Cartwright and the London Hampton Club which called a convention of deputies from clubs which met at the end of January 1817 at the Crown and Anchor Tavern. Um, successfully, they're not interrupted by authorities. He writes on 620, the immediate background to that meeting was the growing popular inf influence of Cobbett in the great spa fields meeting of no meetings of November and December 1816, addressed by Henry Hunt. He then cite he quotes Bamford's account, um, and Bamford comes in throughout this chapter with like really key uh accounts of various meetings um he writes yeah bamford seems to be everywhere yeah he seems to be everywhere he's like a very cogent writer uh so thompson definitely draws on him a lot um at this time the writings of william cobbett suddenly became of great authority they were read on nearly every cottage hearth in the manufacturing districts of south lancashire uh, in those of Leicester, Derby, and Nottingham, also in many of the Scottish manufacturing towns, he directed his readers to the true cause of their sufferings, misgovernment, and to its proper corrective, parliamentary reform. Riots soon became scarce. Hampton clubs were now established. The laborers became deliberate and systematic in their proceedings. Quote, the existence of any political knowledge or fixed political principles amongst the poor in this neighborhood is of very recent date, wrote a Manchester reformer in 1820, who also contributed attributed the change to, quote, Mr. Cobbett's masterly essays upon the financial situation of the country and the effects of ta taxation in reducing the comforts of the laborer. So Cobbett's political register at this point, which Thompson explains, starts gaining even more influence because he gets around the stamp tax in a way that allows him to sell it for very cheap, quote, two-penny trash is what it was referred to. 
Um, so he starts sort of creating, even not necessarily intentionally, but creating a real organizational force um, to call out a national movement through these writings. Yeah. Yet again, a kind of individual writer playing an enormous role in the story. Right, because, I mean, when there's no alternative in possible possible because of all the repression, it makes sense that then these journalists and propagandists step in. And I think it's worth quoting, so he writes, um, the first pamphlet was his famous address to the journeymen and laborers, which um, Thompson quotes at length and I think is worth quoting. He writes, friends and fellow countrymen, whatever the pride of rank of, or riches or of scholarship may have induced some men to believe, the real strength and all the resources of a country ever have sprung and ever must spring from the labor of its people. Elegant dresses, superb furniture, stately buildings, fine roads and canals, fleet horses and carriages, numerous and stout ships, warehouses teeming with goods, all these are so many marks of national wealth and resources. But all these spring from labor. Without the journeymen and the laborers, none of them could exist. The insolent hirelings call you the mob, the rabble, the scum, the swinish multitude, and say that your voice is nothing, that you have no business at public meetings. Cobbett demonstrated in simple terms the burden upon the people of indirect taxation, the heavy expenditure upon sinecure placement and pensioners, the constitution constitutional connection between taxation and representation so he's really laying out sort of the political underlying arguments for for what would become the key demands of the movement yeah you stopped before his attack on Malthus, yes i did I like. <laughs> um he attacked the malthusian argument that the sufferings of the poor were caused by their early marriages and excessive fertility quote so then a young man arm in arm with a rosy-cheeked girl must be a spectacle of evil omen Um, and he similarly, there's a kind of argument that, um, the poor should leave the country, right? They should emigrate presumably to the United States or to Australia. Uh, and he writes, um, you who help me help to maintain them by the taxes, which you pay, have as good a right to remain in the country as they have. You have fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and children and friends as well as they, the only true remedy was a reform parliament. We must have that first or we shall have nothing good. And Thompson goes on to write that 44,000 of the address were sold by the end of November 1816. A sale of 200,000 was claimed for it by the end of 1817. No writing had obtained such, such popular influence since the rights of man. And it was followed by weekly pamphlets in the form of open letters, blah, blah, blah. So it's it, Thompson writes that Cobbett held back from any step which would give the reform movement organized expression and while the Hampton Clubs were fostered by his writing, that was not his intention. And he actually goes on to refuse to speak, um, refuses an invitation to speak at uh, the Spa Fields meeting in, November, in December, um, which Hunt, Henry Hunt then uh, accepts instead. Yeah, it's interesting because Cobbett seems to be kind of to Hunt's left in a certain way. Right. Um, but Hunt is more willing to kind of put himself in front of the crowd. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is also sort of displayed in the fact that Cobbett then leaves and goes to America um, when habeas corpus is suspended, right? Whereas Hunt is willing to speak at these events still. Yeah. So we get the characterization of Henry Hunt here. Hunt was a wealthy gentleman. This is 622. Hunt was a wealthy gentleman farmer who had been a reformer of Cobbett's disposition for 10 years and had first won national prominence when he fought an impressive campaign as a radical in a Bristol election in 1812. 
Bamford's description of him, as he remembered him in 1817, is of a handsome man, quote, gentlemanly in his manner and attire, six feet and better in height. His lips were delicately thin and receding. His eyes were blue or light gray, not very clear but quick, but rather heavy, except as I afterwards had opportunities for observing when he was excited and speaking, at which times they seemed to distend and protrude, and if he worked himself furious, they became blood-streaked and almost started from their sockets. Then it was that the expression of his lip was to be observed. The kind smile was exchanged with a curl of scorn or the curse of indignation. His voice was bellowing, his face swollen and flushed, his gripped hand beat as if it were to pulverize, and his whole manner gave token of a painful energy, struggling for utterance. So he's a kind of uh, shtick. <laughs> Thompson goes on a lot to talk about him as sort of this uh, emblematic demagogue of the moment. Um, but he also makes a point to say, quoting Bamford, that Hunt put himself in really difficult situations and was fairly you know, reliable. Um, It deserves credit for that. Yeah, and deserves credit for that. From 1830 to 1832, he remained loyal to the demand for manhood suffrage. His very consistency and pugnacity made him a center of controversy and a target for abuse. But then Thompson goes on to say, the abuse, however, was not groundless, for Hunt possessed both the qualities and the defects of the demagogue. Um, These characteristics are to be found in a score of leaders of this period so that we must consider them as characteristic of the movement of the time. Um, He then goes on to talk about some of these characteristics. Um, Vanity, uh, a lack of self-discipline, personalizing of conflict that Thompson describes as basically inevitable because, again, their organization couldn't exist and was being repressed. So these individuals then became representatives of these broader conflicts in society. And so, of course, as that played out in writing, it became very personalized. Genuine disagreements upon matters of policy spilled over into personal jealousies, and equally, the leader whose policy was endorsed by popular acclaim found in this food for his personal vanity. The conditions of agitation fostered the personalization of issues. The great mass meeting demanded its colorful figurehead. Hunt, in his white top hat, liked to be known as the champion of liberty— or during his imprisonment after Peterloo as St. Henry of Ilchester, just as <laughs> just as Usler subsequently described himself as King of the Factory Children and O'Connor as the Lion of Freedom. Um, right. And all this is playing, I mean, the next passage is the context in which all this is playing out, uh, which is the like, fundamental strategic dilemma right, of the kind of partial liberal state that they live in. Thompson writes, this is 624, Moreover, popular radicalism and chartism, which is on the horizon now, uh, lived for half a century with the dilemma which beset Thelwall, Gail Jones, and the Jacobin tribunes of the 1790s. The conflict between moral and physical force reformers is sometimes expressed too dogmatically, as if a clear line can be drawn between determined conspirators on the one hand and immaculate constitutionalists on the other. In fact, both radicalism and chartism inhabited a region somewhere between these two extremes. Few reformers before 1839 engaged in serious preparations for insurrection, but fewer still were willing to uh, disavow altogether the ultimate right of the people to resort to rebellion in the face of tyranny. The chartist slogan, peaceably if we may, if we may, forcibly if we must, expresses also the common notion held by the radicals of 1816 to 20 and 1830 to 32. Major Cartwright insisted on the citizens' right to carry arms. Henry White, the editor of the moderate 
newspaper Independent Whig, was only one among many radical journalists who reminded readers of the precedent of the glorious revolution of 1688. Quote, it is to a revolution they owe every portion of civil and religious liberty they are yet permitted to enjoy, and it is to a revolution that they will ultimately be compelled to resort if all other legal means be denied of obtaining a redress of grievances. The name of the Hampton Clubs recalled an even more drastic precedent, and Cobbett was at pains to stress that revolution was good Whig doctrine. The right to resist oppression by force, he wrote, is distinctly claimed and established by the laws and usages of England. So this is the kind of dynamic of the rest of the chapter, right? The the way that in the in the absence of uh, durable organization, there's kind of oscillation between constitutionalism and sort of insurrectionary politics. Mm -hmm. As Thompson writes on the next page, every popular radical journal, journal and orator made some reference oblique or direct to the right of rebellion. It was part of the essential rhetoric of a movement which had almost no access to legal redress through the franchise to hint, warn, or bluster about the ultimate recourse of the people to physical force. And he describes how even Henry Hunt similarly sort of dabbles in the speaking of the fatal day when, you know, every other um, avenue for redress has been tried and failed and then the people will rise up and he would be with them. Yeah, I also, um, this is a bit of a tangent, but on the next page... Do you want to talk about his, uh, his like, weird powder that he sold? Yeah, Henry Hunt sells supplements. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and not just him. Um, so, uh, you know, there's various, there's ongoing strife over kind of vanity and, you know, who's popular and this kind of thing. Um, there's ongoing kind of more substantive strife over constitutionalism versus insurrectionary politics. However... Another perpetual source of strife was money matters. It was an expensive business being a radical leader, as both Cobbett and Hunt had reason to know. In addition to speech-making, publications, traveling, and correspondence, there were heavy expenses incurred for legal defense or during electoral contests. Cobbett, and more especially Hunt, were extravagant in their tastes, Cobbett in his farming ventures, Hunt in his general style of living. Both were careless in their financial dealings. The incoherent radical movement, with no elected executive and no accredited treasurer, was perpetually subjected to appeals from ad hoc committees to assist with funds for this or that emergency. This feels familiar. Cobbett recouped his losses by his publishing profits, while Hunt sought to turn propaganda to his advantage by selling, quote, radical breakfast powder, a concoction based on roasted corn, which was sold as a substitute for tea or coffee, and which was recommended to radicals as a means of boycotting taxed articles. No clear line was drawn between their private business concerns and the finances of the movement. I mean, uh, you know, I think in five or ten years we're probably all going to be selling supplements. <laughs> and so this was just like, this is really pioneering. Uh, yeah, trend. I mean, just like statistically speaking, I have no intention of doing that, but just statistically speaking. <laughs> So he talks a little, I mean, he has a very funny couple comments about Cobbett before we move on, which I think we probably should. We, this chapter is very long. Um, but Thompson writes, so Cobbett at this point is, you know, uh, described by Hazlitt as a kind of fourth estate in the politics of the country, unquestionably the most powerful political writer of the present day. He's read by everyone, laws are passed specifically to try to target him in his newsletters. Um, and then Thompson writes, 
Cobbett's favorite subject, indeed, was William Cobbett of Botley. Page after page of his register is filled with his affairs, self-justifications, arguments, feelings, chance impressions, and encounters. The cause of reform was personalized into the encounter between William Cobbett and old corruption. Um, it's just a very funny description of just the incredible weaknesses of putting uh, your movement's future and faith and uh, um, destiny in a couple of writers. Yeah, uh, well, <laughs> Just should never be done. Let's not think more about that. <laughs> <laughs> I do think there's an interesting description of Hunt on 630 um, where Thompson writes, The demagogue is a bad or ineffectual leader. Hunt voiced not principle nor even well-formulated radical strategy, but the emotions of the movement. Striving always to say whatever would provoke the loudest cheer, he was not the leader but the captive of the least stable portion of the crowd. I just think it's an interesting way to think about the actual role occupied strategically and intellectually by famous orators or writers um in fact is not necessarily one of leadership but actually reaction to the crowd right and um similarly what may what constitutes political leadership actually in radical movements um like for example if you think about lenin right there's all these images of lenin orating right and that is a kind of like that's how he's often represented in portraiture and this kind of thing right lenin leading out over the crowd gesturing mm -hmm. but uh Really, Lenin was a bureaucratic infighter, right? I mean, like that's that's what leadership actually, like, as I think, more often meant in like organized radical settings. Mm -hmm. um, and the or like the picture, uh, the picture of the orator as a kind of popular figure is a, typically a picture of disorganization. Like Debs, for example, right? Debs, famously great orator, hugely beloved and charismatic figure, um, in the context of a socialist party that was like incredibly internally fractious. And like pretty small and weak ultimately. I mean, this is substituting, right? Substituting yourself for something that you know, an, a crowd that doesn't need an order, right? Yeah, exactly. And like, I mean, all, just on the Socialist Party, you know, I uh, and there are people who know this history better than me. But basically, the way I, I understand the history of the Socialist Party of the United States is that it consisted of, uh, you know, Germans in Milwaukee, Jews in New York and farmers in Oklahoma, basically, and then various other smatterings of, you know, little clusters of radicalized workers here and there, um, mm. none of which could stand each other, right? Uh, and constantly were disagreeing with each other, but they all could agree on Debs. Um, and for various reasons, you know, and uh, for that reason, Debs, like, Debs's charisma becomes, like, central to the party's identity. So the next section is about the Hampton Clubs. I don't particularly have much to say about it. Um, at this point, Cobbett defects to the United States. Where he's, like, kind of never heard from. I mean, he, like, pops up in England again. But he, like, makes no impression in the United States, I think. Uh, but on the point that we are just making, Thompson writes on 631, from 1815 until the Chartist years, which is the 1830s, basically, the movement always appeared most vigorous, consistent, and healthy at the base and especially in such provincial centers as Barnsley and Halifax, Lowborough and uh, Rochdale. Um, it's true heroes with the local booksellers and news vendors, trade union organizers, secretaries and local speakers for the Hampton Clubs and political unions, men who did not expect to become honored life pensioners of the movement as a reward for imprisonment, and who, in many cases, were too obscure to do more than leave a few records of their activity in the local press or the home office papers. 
These men provided the platform without which the disputatious pro Protestant leaders would, would have been impotent, and they often watched the quarrels among the leadership with dismay. I mean, huge numbers of people have been imprisoned also is an important dimension of this story. Uh, on the next page, 632, Thompson says this. Um, and as the quote I just read kind of implied too, the debtor's jails were places where spies might on occasion be recruited, but they were also, to a more important extent, finishing schools for radicals, where the victims who languished under the punitive rigors of the laws of debt were, I mean, so this is not just political imprisonment, but debt prison, debtor's prison, uh, were able to read, to argue, and to enlarge their acquaintance. So, I mean, this explains why there's a constant focus on attacking the prisons, right? That's sort of the rhetoric of the insurrectionary wing of the movement. Yeah. Right, and also, I mean, memory of the Bastille. Right, of course. So he talks about some of these, like the Spa Fields meetings and some of these sort of stories about um, planned insurrection that doesn't quite go off, doesn't quite happen. Yeah, well, I thought that this, this story is quite dramatic, actually. I was... I didn't remember it at all from reading the book before, and I found it quite amazing. It kind of, you know, Thompson portrays it as doom, the Pentridge Rising, as sort of a doomed, borderline silly or delusional affair. But it seems kind of impressive to me. I mean, they lost, obviously, so it's not that impressive. But, like, uh... <laughs> I don't know. I read this and the idea that the participants had that they might be able to touch off a more general insurrection didn't seem delusional. And why is that, Gabe? I mean, the story Thompson has told us thus far of like, you know, um, the government is ruling by pure force, um, you know, especially across the industrial north, but to some extent also in London. Uh, you know, there's a kind of huge dissenting kind of anger and you know rage at, at, at the government and taxation and lack of representation um, you know there's I mean the tradition of disciplined insurrectionary action is quite deep even if, if there's not organizations represented in this moment so I read this account and thought like you know it seemed no less credible than, like, John Brown's raid, for example. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't have much to say about this section. I mean, the next section is about the spy, Oliver. Is that a children's book? No, Harry's spy. <laughs> <I think>, yeah. <laughs> so Oliver the spy is, like, manages to be everywhere. Is He sort of gets, yeah. gets in very deep into these conspiracies and these reform clubs. He's admitted into the inner circle of London reformers, is what Thompson writes on 653. At one point, he becomes the London representative of this conspiratorial planning. So it's a spy himself who's sort of um, at the forefront of this. Thompson's sort of debating here with, I think, Whig historians who sort of dismiss all of these conspiracies as the product of spies and informers. Um, as totally based in that and not based in any kind of working class movement. Thompson's saying, no, there actually was some basis for this. It wasn't just the work of informers. But Oliver the Spy becomes, in British history at the time, and 
discourse at the time, this sort of powerful argument against the insurrectionary wing of the movement. And he's not just a spy, but he's also a provocateur, right? Um, I mean, in, in the way that you're saying, the kind of ongoing debate or dynamic within the movement over how much to bear arms and how much to do petitions, basically. Um, he is trying to provoke people into um, ill-advised insurrectionary action. And it's a huge scandal when he's exposed. Right, I mean, Cobbett is like writing from America about the, about Oliver, everyone's sort of talking in the, as the case goes up um, against the conspirators, Oliver is sort of, his testimony is suppressed because it would just be, in part, because some people think it would be an outrage to hear about it. And people are in England are just sort of shocked that the government is deploying spies in this way against what they thought were their protected rights. Yeah. Um, however, Thompson writes on 668, there is reason to suppose that some of those involved were in the Pentridge uprising were not dupes of Oliver, but were experienced revolutionaries. Brandreth, who's a member of the uprising, Brandreth's long silence had in it a heroism which has been little understood. It is probable that he kept silent about Oliver in the hope that his own death would atone for the offenses of his fellows and in order to prevent the involvement of fellow reformers. Brandreth, according to one account, is said to have declared that his blood ought to be shed as he had shed blood, but he hoped he should be the only victim. But at the same time, he felt no contrition for the murder which he had committed. Although ready to join in any act of religion, he was insensible of any remorse and proof against all fear. God gave me great fortitude, he wrote to his wife, to bear up my spirits on trial. We may see the Pentridge Rising as one of the first attempts in history to mount a wholly proletarian insurrection without any middle-class support. The objectives of this revolutionary movement cannot perhaps be better characterized than in the words of the Belper Street song, the revolution is begun. The attempt throws light upon the extreme isolation into which the Northern and Midlands workers have been forced during the wars, and it is a transitional moment between Luddism and the populist radicalism of 1818-20 and 1830-32. Even without Oliver's patent provocations, some kind of insurrection would probably have been attempted, and perhaps with a greater measure of success. Indeed, in the Crown's view, not Oliver nor Mitchell, but Thomas Bacon, who himself had traveled between Nottingham, Derby, Yorkshire, Lancashire, and Birmingham, was the main instigator of rebellion. So Thompson then says this offers a kind of justification for the government's intense repression. Believing that some outbreak was inevitable, they determined to handle it in such a way as to exact an example of terror and punishment, which would silence once and for all the monstrous sedition of the lower orders. But this is not to suggest that in any circumstances in 1817, a working class insurrection had any hope of success. Every detail of the story illustrates the weakness of the revolutionary organization and the lack of an experienced leadership. Right. Which, I mean, if some, if one provocateur can have such an effect, uh, then probably this is a sign of weakness in the movement. Sure. Well, yes and no, though, right? Because, I mean, I agree. But also, like... If one provocateur can have such an effect, then people are ready to go. Sure. I mean, yeah, it's like tragic, some of these stories of the people going on the march and expecting London to rise because that's what Oliver told them would happen. 
Um, but these are people from small villages and towns, and yet they're yeah. there in the hundreds prepared to sort of be, take part in a revolution. Which leads on to Peterloo, uh, where... To Peterloo. Peterloo is the main event of this chapter. Yeah, where, you know, hundreds of thousands of people um, go to a thing knowing that there's a possibility of violence, and yet they're willing to take part. So to speak to your point about people being ready to go, I mean, yeah. um, Peterloo, obviously, people didn't expect violence, but they were still willing to take part in a mass Yeah, they knew that thousands of people assembled in, you know, in this envi- political and legal environment. There was some chance of violence. Right. So should you, do you want to sum up what Peterloo, what happened? Sure. I mean, so Peterloo uh, is an event in Manchester, which is the center of the Industrial Revolution, the site of the you know burgeoning cotton cotton industry, um, and uh, it's a demonstration basically. So it's a demonstration to be held, you know, demanding uh, parliamentary representation um, on St Peter's Field, which is a you know it's like a open area in, in Manchester. Um, Henry Hunt comes to talk, to orate. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of kind of interesting details of different kinds about how this comes to happen, but the basic thing that comes to happen is that there's a massacre. Um, the the yeomanry, which are, you know, the sort of local um, the National Guard, in effect, you know, something above the level of police, um, but was you know there's also a military presence um, attack the crowd in a kind of unprovoked way and kill I forget the number now but I think it's about a dozen people and wound hundreds more much, hundreds more yeah um, it acquires the name Peterloo you know in reference to Waterloo um, which is obviously very recent in this moment the Battle of Waterloo where Napoleon was finally defeated. Um, and, you know, it becomes one of the most important events of 19th century British history. Um, I mean, it's, it's as, as I understand it, you know, it's something that, like, you learn about in your textbook and it kind of, at least in theory, everyone who, you know, takes ninth grade, whatever the equivalent of, like, ninth grade history or something, you know, it's like, it's a major event in British history, um, a kind of open, wanton attack on people peaceably assembled. So Thompson writes on 683, Confronted by the swelling power of this movement, old corruption faced the alternatives of meeting the reformers with repression or concession. But concession in 1819 would have meant concession to a largely working class reform movement. The middle class reformers were not yet strong enough, as they were in 1832, to offer a more moderate line of advance. This is why Peter Liu took place. And then he repeats it, right? This has to be said again, since, since it has been suggested recently that Peterloo was an affair, in part unpremeditated, in part arising from the exacerbated relations in Manchester itself, but in no sense any part of a considered policy of government repression. Um, and, you know, obviously there's a kind of question about the specific chain of events, who armed, sorry, who gave the order, um, you know, why, when, etc., um, but what's very clear, I think, is that, um, well, what Thompson wants to make very clear is that the demonstration has a kind of 
political quality, right? Much as he said about the Luddites in the previous chapter, the Luddites are not simply trying to improve their working conditions um, and, you know, ward off mechanization of their trades, but they're actually kind of ultimately committed to a whole vision of uh, working life and industry that impels them into an insurrectionary posture. And so thereby they have to be understood not just as a kind of industrial movement, but as a fundamentally political one. Uh, similarly here, I think Thompson is saying, um, right, the demonstration, the confrontation, and the violence all have to be understood as episodes of political class struggle, right? That it's not simply like workers rallying. I mean, obviously they're rallying for parliamentary representation, so it's explicit. Um but that the repression is also not just a kind of irrational overreaction or something. Right. He writes on 686, the panic was not, as has been suggested, the panic of bad horsemen hemmed in by a crowd. It was the panic of class hatred. It was the yeomanry, the Manchester manufacturers, merchants, publicans, and shopkeepers on horseback, which did more damage than the regulars. In the yeomanry, a middle-class reformer testified, there are individuals whose political rancor approaches to absolute insanity. He goes on to write, there is no term for this but class war, but it was a pitifully one-sided war. The people, closely packed and trampling upon each other in the effort to escape, made no effort at retaliation until the very edges of the field, where a few trapped remnants, finding themselves pursued into the streets and yards, threw brick bets at their pursuers. Eleven were killed or died from their wounds. Hundreds more um, were had saber wounds from the yeomanry. Right, the violence is all uh, with with edged weapons. Right, it's not it's not with guns. It seems. Uh, I mean, in terms of the like local context, though, he does say on six eighty four, an exceptional antagonism obtained between the Manchester loyalists and the working class reformers. In part, this was the result of the maturity of the working class movement. In part, of a dozen factors, the loyalist sentiments of many of the great commercial and manufacturing houses, their antagonism to the trade unions, the legacy of Luddism and of 1817, the influence of Naden, um, who is a cop, basically. Yeah, he's the like, lead, lead cop in the <laughs> yeah, area, cop. right? Uh, <laughs> the influence of Tory churchmen, uh, Quote, these Manchester yeomen and magistrates are a greater set of brutes than you form a conception of, writes Place. I know one of those fellows who swears, damn his eyes, seven shillings a week is plenty for them. And when he goes round to see how much work his weavers have in their looms, he takes a well-fed dog with him. He said some time ago that the sons of bitches had eaten up all the stinging nettles for ten miles around Manchester, and now they had no greens to their broth. Upon my expressing indignation, he said, damn their eyes, what need you care about them? How could I sell you goods so cheap if I cared anything about them? They cut down and trampled down the people, and then it was to end just as cutting and trampling the furze bushes on a common would end. So Thompson goes on to sort of emphasize, he writes, the second point about Peterloo, which is somehow evaded definition, um, is the sheer size of the event in terms of its psychological impact and manifold repercussions. It was, without question, a formative experience in British political and social history. So once again, we have this sense of what the freeborn Englishman's rights actually are imagined to be versus what they are in practice and sort of the um, psychological impact of seeing that dissonance between the two has a huge um, impact on the future of how the working classes think of their relation to the state. 
Right. Uh, on 689, Peterloo outraged every belief and prejudice of the freeborn Englishman, the right of free speech, the desire for fair play, the taboo against attacking the defenseless. For a time, ultra-radicals and moderates buried their differences in a protest movement with which many Whigs were willing to associate. Protest meetings were held on the 29th August in Smithfield with Dr. Watson in the chair and Arthur Thistlewood as a speaker, these being quite radical figures. On the 5th September, a much larger meeting in Westminster with Burdett, Cartwright, Hobhouse, and John Thelwall among the speakers. When Hunt made his triumphal entry into London 10 days later, the Times estimated that 300,000 were in the streets. I mean, this reminds me of the present moment. Why? The, uh, you know, overreaction of a kind of, you know, Thompson used the word or quoted someone using the word, in, I can't remember, insane, right, to describe the yeomanry's response to peaceable, in fact, peaceable demonstration, largely. There's a context of some violent, demonst- violent activity, right? Um, but uh, there's a kind of inability to con- act with constraint and discipline on the part of, like, the armed authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, in a context of, like, deepening crisis and contestation over, like, the function of like you know or the operation of liberal rights right um and that drives a large section of like moderate opinion into the arms of the left Mm -hmm. which is kind of what's happened in the last month i would say sure and then but what's the outcome of this right so for in (laughs) for the i mean in england it's the passage of the six acts right where there's sort of a repression from the state. Yeah. That takes the sort of initiative of the yeomanry and, and codifies it in law. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, so there's this kind of like repression that comes out of this in the form you're saying. On the other, though, I think I, I was quite struck by Thompson observing about Peterloo that in some way its most significant lasting consequence is the realization of, by the authorities that they could never do this again. Right, that you get to do this one time only. Um, and in that way, it also embeds a kind of victory into uh, the kind of balance of forces in some way. Right. He sort of talks about how Hunt immediately knew this was a victory, even though it was a tragedy, because it was so unjustified and insane um, as a response that they the state had overplayed its hand. Right. And there's a kind of agreement to limited concessions uh, is at the very end of the chapter on 709-710 Thompson writes we're skipping over something here we should come back to which is Cato Street but um, Thompson writes even Wilberforce felt that some moderate reformers ought perhaps to come forward to rescue the multitude out of the hands of the Hunts and Thistlewoods after the clamor of 1819 had died down the middle-class reform movement assumed a more determined aspect. Second, the experience of the post-war agitation shook the confidence of the Ancien Regime in itself, and some of the loyalists in 1819 became, in the 1820s, willing to admit the need for limited concessions. Thus, even the Colonel, even Colonel Burley of the Manchester Yeomanry was found in the 1820s campaigning for the transfer of seats from rotten boroughs to Manchester. In the minds of such men as Peel, the conviction was growing that some alliance must be made 
between the manufacturing and landed interest and against the working class. So that's also consolidation of the ruling class in, in, in the face of this. But third, the enduring influence of Peterloo lay in the sheer horror of the day's events. In 1819, the action of the loyalists found many defenders in their own class. Ten years later, it was an event to be remembered, even among the gentry, with guilt. As a massacre, and as Peterloo, it went down to the next generation. And because of the odium attaching to the event, we may say that in the annals of the freeborn Englishman, the massacre was yet, in its way, a victory. Even old corruption knew in its heart that it dared not do this again. Since the moral consensus of the nation outlawed the riding down and sabering of an unarmed crowd, the corollary followed that the right of public meeting had been gained. Henceforward, strikers or agricultural workers might be ridden down to disperse with violence, but never since Peterloo has authority dared to use equal force against a peaceful British crowd. What is there to say about the Cato Street conspiracy before we uh, wrap up? I mean, it's kind of nuts, yeah. but you have, to, you have to kind of love it. Yeah, so tell the story of the Cato Street conspiracy. I mean, the Cato Street conspiracy, it, you know, so uh, basically, you know, it's this real low ebb of the movement and a group of the kind of harder edge of, um, you know, insurrectionaries, basically, um, hatch a plan to murder the cabinet, right? That, and they think if they can kind of kill the cabinet, then they can touch off a revolution. And, um, you know, as is so often the case in these kinds of episodes, they are being played by the authorities who lure them into a trap and, you know, catch them. Um, right. I mean, they were going to attack the cabinet at a dinner and the cabinet yeah. and the government finds out about this because they have all these spies and so even the dinner itself is a setup, right? So it, right. the whole thing was sort of known from advan from the start. Um, right, so Cato Street is where the dinner is supposed to happen. Right. The heads of Casserly and Sidmouth were to be placed on pikes, proclamations of a provisional government posted in the city. Minor diversions started at the tower and the mansion house. At the time of the proposed attack, approached Thistlewood appears, who is sort of one of the head conspirators, Thistlewood appears to have held it, to it only with a desperate kind of honor. Something must be attempted. Thompson is describing this as sort of like a desperate rash, and he even uses yeah. the word pathetic um, sort of conspiracy. He quotes, I hope you will not give up what you're going to do, said Thistlewood. If you do, this will be another Despard's business. The plan of, had, of course, long been known to the heads, which it was proposed to carry on pikes through the streets. <laughs> Even the advertisement in the New Times announcing the cabinet dinner was a hoax. The conspirators were duly apprehended, though not without a skirmish, in which Thistlewood ran through one of the Bow Street runners. The arrest created the sensation which the government required to justify the six acts, and also to help them through a general election. So it's a really sad story. In a lot yeah, of it's a major bummer. Yeah, big bummer. <laughs> <laughs> And these are the old Spencians. Yeah. That are... Right. That Thistlewood was a prominent Spencian right. figure. Um, do you want to talk about the movie a little bit? Oh, yeah. What, what's there to say about the movie? So the movie is Peterloo. By, Directed by Mike, Mike Lee. Yeah. Uh, not going to say where it's available because I don't want to sound like a sp sponsored ad. <laughs> Just find You can find it if you need. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so what do you think of the movie? I thought it was good. 
Um, I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, I joke, I was joking about it on Twitter. Um, you know, it's a very much a movie of a certain kind. Uh, and I was joking that like, does every kind of social realist film about like working class struggle have to feature a poor woman in a bonnet singing a beautiful tragic ballad? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. It's like a real staple of the form, but I respect it. Um, <laughs> There was a lot of speechifying but, going on. It was a whole movie with speeches, yeah, basically. Right. Um, I don't know, though. I mean, I think it's certainly... I think it's worth... I understood this chapter better after I watched the movie, I think. And it certainly um, plays out some of the stuff here quite well, I think. Like, you know, there's the meeting. There's an early scene that's a meeting uh, in Manchester, I think. Um where, you know, there's some kind of respected older radicals and some kind of fiery young ones. And, you know, they're having this meeting and they're talking about mass meeting, right? There's hundreds of people there. And different speeches, are, you know, people are arguing for different strategies and so on. And, uh, you know, they say, we're going to take our petition to Parliament. and We're, we're going to gather all, our signatures on it. We're going to take it to Parliament. And if Parliament does not grant our petition which is for suffrage and, uh, you know, parliamentary representation and annual elections. If parliament doesn't grant it, we'll take it to the king. And if the king doesn't grant it, we will simply incarcerate the king and his family. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And the the, the way in which constitutionalism and insurrectionary politics are, uh, you know, coexisting in this milieu, I thought came through kind of clearly there. Right. I mean, there's like awkward moments where one of the young radicals goes a little too far in talking about strangling the king or something, and then it just right and gets arrested. Right, and there's just sort of awkward silence as that happens. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and similarly, you know, there's this uh, I think kind of key scene. So basically, the kind of plot of the movie, such as it is, is that you know it, there's this kind of it follows, um, Ma- you know, Manchester radicals and some kind of regular workers as the preparations for this demonstration are underway. And they, you know, follows them as they go recruit Henry Hunt to come be their speaker. Um, and he's not portrayed particularly favorably. Uh, you know, he arrives in Manchester um, and he, he has to stay in a worker's house, which is not nice for him. Um, and he also has to stay for an extra week because the demonstration's delayed and he's furious about being in Manchester that long. Right, which is why he has to stay in the right. house, right? Because he, he had planned to stay at a hotel for a night, but if he stays at a hotel for a week, there'll be spies. Mm-hmm. Um, but they can, you know, he, they convince him to stay. And so, you know, a lot of the movies are kind of build up to the demonstration like this. Um, but there's this key scene the day before, I think, where Samuel Bamford comes to the house where he's staying. Where Hunt is staying. Where Hunt is staying. And Bamford is portrayed as a kind of like, uh, kind of honest and plain dealing, uh, you know, authentic radical against Hunt's kind of more vain uh, and performative demagogue thing. I don't know to what extent that's true of Bamford, but that's how Bamford is played. Um, So Bamford comes and he says... To hunt, you know, so, you know, Henry, I'm really looking forward to tomorrow. It's going to be great. We're going to have a ton of people there. Um, but listen, what would you say to the idea of, like, just in case things go south, we have, like, 20 or 30 or 40 dudes 
who have guns under their jackets or cudgels or knives or whatever, or armed secretly. Um, and Hunt is like scandalized by this, you know, and says, you know, I, I, I'll never speak to crowds that are bearing arms. And, um, you know, I understand your fears, but, uh, you know, if I talk to them, there will be no violence. Don't worry. Um, and then Bamford, you know, he kind of then prevents Bamford himself from speaking at the event also. Uh, and they kind of have this falling out. Um, and so that I that all, too, seems kind of like a, you know, interesting kind of moment in the question of, like, how do violence and uh, sort of liberal reformism coexist in, in this milieu mm -hmm. i mean it's this question of the forging of a disciplined class right is like this is a moment of transition so i thought the scenes of them like drilling in the like soldiers like soldiers and in fact being drilled as thompson mentions in this chapter you know it was veterans of waterloo off it that were back home and drilling uh their yeah. their fellow villagers in so that they can sort of present as this as no longer a mob, but rather, you know, this disciplined, uh, organizationally coherent and cogent movement. Um, and I think that scene with Bamford is like an interesting, is also part of this tension, right? As Bamford has been a big part of trying to forge that discipline. There's a long scene of him having his family, you know, march to the demonstration altogether, looking, you know, very um, disciplined and in line and in order. And he tells them all to drop their weapons. But there's this sense of, can is it possible to actually present that coherent picture when you're faced with the violence of the state? Right. Um, the picture of the elites in this movie was, like, really quite ghoulish, which, you know, obviously they are. I'm curious if they actually would have sort of sounded like this or not. Um, yeah, them, like, all the guys watching Peter, the the demonstration at St. Peter's Field from the window of some building and they're sort of infighting endlessly about what to do about it. I mean, it does seem to echo Thompson's reflection of it's impossible to tell who ordered what um, yeah. as far as the repression goes if there were all these yeah. fighting, conflicting factions within the ruling class. But, you know, I mean, there was a moment where um, one of them kind of screams like, the mob is attacking the yeomanry. Uh, which is obviously like the opposite of what's happening. Mm -hmm. um, and again, felt like, okay, that like we can recognize that in, you know, 2020. Right, right. Um, where only one side is armed. Also, the yeomanry are themselves, I mean, they're not, I described them as like the National Guard before, right? They're a kind of volunteer, quasi military force, mm -hmm. I think. But they're. I think they're themselves socially, they're members of the elite mm -hmm. who like, uh, you know, will take up arms when needed or whatever. I think that's actually who they are. Yeah. I mean, and that's played out, Thompson, we talked about that in this chapter, that yeah. these are people who have, like, he quotes someone saying that these people have real personalized disagreements with, like, they hate people like Bamford. They actually personally know these reformers and they yeah. hate them. Um, so yeah. when they're driven to, I mean, they're shown in the movie sort of getting drunk and celebrating because they're so excited to be able to repress the the working class. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's fun for them. <laughs> anyway, I thought it was a good movie. I mean, it was, compared to the other one we watched, it was definitely less of a slog. Yeah. I mean, I enjoyed Comrades too, but, uh, and it was more, 
it was definitely less like predictable. Like every beat of this movie, you were kind of like, okay, I see the next, like I see what this mm-hmm. is. But um, yeah, I thought it was good. I, uh, you should watch it, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> we are now sponsored by uh, Big Peter Lou. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Mike Lee is a great filmmaker. Though. Yeah, I mean, Mike Lee is like a you know one of the major along with um, Ken Loach. Uh, one of the major kind of like you know British socialist filmmakers. We should have had him on the show, Gabe. Yeah. Didn't think of it. Didn't think of it. <laughs> anyway, so I think um, so for next week it's the last chapter. Is it There's one more? Yeah, it's just one. I thought there were two more. Uh, no. You're right. It's just one. It's, oh my it's god. It's really long. It's another long chapter. It's like 120 pages, I think. Should we split it or should we just do it? Um, I feel like we should just do it. I think we should, yeah, you're right. we should you're right. we've done these long chapters. We've proven we can do it. Um Yeah. Yeah, it's hundred and twenty pages or so. We can do it. Yeah. It covers Owenism, more about Cobbett. Um and then that's it. That's it, yeah. Well, you know, so Thompson says at various points throughout the book, including this week's reading, um, right that there's two moments when Britain really comes close to revolution and he saved them for the last two chapters. So one is the immediate post-war period, which you've just talked about, and the other is the early 1830s, which is coming up. So the highlights are, you know, we're in it now. <laughs> we finally made it through the <laughs> prelude. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, thank you, everyone, who's listened to this much of the show. Uh, very exciting. Just one more chapter left. Um, and uh, I think that's about it, right? Yeah. Cool. Talk soon. All right. Talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Casualties of History, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. Thanks to our producer, Sarah Hurd, and to Joey La Neve de Francesco for the music. You can find us at Blueberry.com. That's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com backslash J-A-C-O-B-I-N. Or at Patreon.com backslash Casualties of History. If you want to join in the conversation about the reading, sign up on Patreon and you'll be added to our Slack.